Welcome to our Spiritual Resilience Podcast with Reverend Rich Taffel, a transformative leader and executive coach in areas of public policy, social change, and spiritual entrepreneurship. We understand that today's life and social challenges require a more holistic approach, including spiritual tools, thoughtful dialogue, and of course, community building. Join us in the conversation. Today, I want to talk about the role faith communities can and should play in stopping our nation's spiral toward polarization that could eventually lead to armed conflict. If you've been listening to me at all preach these last six years, you know that I feel that one of the biggest concerns facing our country and the world is the fracturing in our nation into warring camps. In fact, I'd go as far as to say I believe that this negative spiral of polarization is the most dangerous event in our lives. Now, I'm not alone. A recent poll by Morin, a group called More in Common said that 94% of Americans believe that America is politically divided and 92% are worried for the future of America. Those are pretty serious numbers. And this trust that we need to live together is eroding among us. One survey reports a majority of Americans saying, you can't be too careful in dealing with other people. And one in three Americans saying that there is no, they have no community outside of family and friends. There's no real sense of belonging. So this lack of trusting each other and this increased anxiety that we're experiencing around politics has the ingredients to degrade our democracy and increase the chance of civil war. Now that might sound dramatic to you, and it could be true, maybe it's not, but in the book uh, written by Barbara Walters, not the famous Barbara Walters, uh, a scholar, Barbara Walters, uh, that is a fascinating read and I highly recommend, uh, entitled What Causes Civil War and How We Can Stop It. She makes a compelling case that we're heading as a nation in the direction of civil conflict. As a scholar of civil wars around the world, Walters makes an important observation that civil wars rarely, if ever, happen in countries where one party dominates, for example, dictatorships, because in those governments, the military can put down dissent pretty quickly. Instead, civil wars are more likely to occur in failing democracies, where one group feels that they are losing power and they are not sure what's going to happen as they lose control. She cites, for example, the Sunni Iraqis who were in the minority but held a control of the country, but in the newly created democracy, they lost power to a Shia majority. And that led them to feel that they have no way to protect their interests and has led to a civil war. Now, America is the world's oldest democracy and one that barely survived our own bloody civil war at a time when the industrial anti-slave majority threatened an agrarian pro-slave culture that would have faced a dramatic loss and did face a dramatic loss of power and wealth to end slavery. And some have argued that that civil war is still festering in this country to this day. And it's, look around, we see this rise of Confederate flags. It seemed to be a potent symbol of that belief. 
here in the United States, we are becoming a majority minority country. White Americans, particularly those who are not part of an urban elite world economy, can understandably feel a sense of loss of power and wonder how they will be treated in a country where they may not be the racial majority. Often, as countries move toward civil war, the author notes, there is a rise in identification by ethnicity and race. And we see this trend in the United States. As groups feel they can no longer re rely on the government to protect them, she cites a rise takes place among militias. And she points out there is a rising trend in the United States of militias. So using her rigorous data system, she suggests the United States is slipping away from a model of democracy toward civil war and suggests that our use of social media in, in recent years is speeding that unraveling dramatically. And then just last uh, couple weeks, Jonathan Haidt, um, one of my favorite writers uh, and thinkers, wrote a powerful essay in The Atlantic entitled, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. It's not just a phase. His piece echoes Walter's book. He suggests that social media and the use of the like button and the share button on social media platforms have transformed the social media world from a world of sharing with people to a world of performance. And the more drama and the more conflict, the more shares. The more shares, the more enemies, the more money that people can make, and the greater status can be achieved. And he argues that technology and social media as we have it now has literally changed our brains and moved us toward a culture lacking in the skills to engage across different viewpoints. He concludes that piece suggesting that social media as it stands now is incompatible with democracy and feels we only have a few years to stem the tide. So as people become more stressed and frayed, it makes building true community much harder. Most Americans, according to that work of the group More in Common, are not aligning in either party, they're just stepping out. More in Common calls these people the exhausted majority, which could make up as much as 80% of the American population. They are turned off by hyper-partisanships and the threats, and they just shut down. They check out. They keep their head down, deciding that it simply isn't worth the hassle of engaging anymore. In fact, 68% of college students are reluctant to share their political views for fear of negative consequences. Another study showed that a third of Americans across the political spectrum are worried about losing a job or job opportunities if they express their true political views. So if people are afraid to speak and people are wanting to check out, it is very hard for us to build community and common ground. This departure of this exhausted majority leaves our politics open to two extreme warring camps, bent really on destroying each other and our politics if necessary. And I will say on a daily basis, I speak to people here in the city of DC who say, Rich, I'm exhausted and I'm getting out. Not only do they want to leave DC, they tell me, they want to leave the country because they find public life so toxic.
This empowers the partisans on each side. And it was striking that the author of that book, Barbara Walter, uh, shared that she and her husband have renewed passports for other countries, just in case. Very calm, small, key, small c conservative political experts who I really respect very much have privately said to me that they're so alarmed right now that they aren't sure our country can survive a 2024 election. It's going to be tough. So this is our nation's most serious challenge and we really lack really a plan or attention to deal with it. One of the problems offered in both Walter's book and Haidt's article is that they require citizens to come together in groups and work out the solutions. But without the skills to build community, those solutions don't have a chance. So the secret really is we must find ways to build back communities. And I believe that the faith community is the place to start. I see three reasons why faith communities are the place to start. The first is that houses of faith see a larger spiritual aspect to people's lives. So what do I mean? People of faith realize that our work is not all up to us. We rely on forces greater than ourselves and we are to seek good in our world. We can draw on spiritual power. The best example of this is a leader of one of our most successful movements for social change in the country, the late Congressman John Lewis, who is a great teacher of moving things ahead, I think, and, and wildly underread, but should be better known. He spoke of the role of faith communities in tapping into the power of God's love, saying, on many occasions, we had been beaten, arrested, in jail. You had to call upon something, some force, some power much larger, much greater, much more powerful. In my estimation, the civil rights movement was a religious phenomenon. When we'd go out and sit in or go out to march, I felt, I really believe there was a force in front of us and a force behind us, because sometimes you didn't know what to do. You didn't know what to say. You didn't know how you're going to make it through the day or through the night. But somehow, some way, you believed, you had faith that it was going to be all right. End of his quote. The creation of American democracy was, its sense, uh, was itself a theologically based project. In the lesson that we read today from Genesis, we hear the phrase created in the image of God. This concept that we're all created in the image of God has had a profound impact on politics. In fact, it's the underpinning for the radical words in our own Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Our political system was built on a belief that people would find their moral life and their meaning and their purposes in houses of faith. Today, the opposite's true. As faith communities have withered, citizens are finding their meaning and purpose in politics. And when that happens, it politicizes every aspect of life, from sports, to wearing masks, to family holidays. We need to rebuild faith communities to help us find our meaning and our purpose and our service to others, and use those lessons to inform our political work. Again, I look to the teachings of John Lewis 
reminding us how they succeeded. He says, during those early days, we didn't study the Constitution, the Supreme Court decision of 1954. We studied the great religions of the world. We discussed and debated the teachings of the great teacher. And we would ask questions about what would Jesus do? In preparing for sit-ins, we felt the message was one of love, the message of love in action. Don't hate. If someone hits you, don't strike back. Just turn the other side. Be prepared to forgive. That's not anything any constitution says about forgiveness. It's straight from scripture, reconciliation. So the movement, the early foundation, the early teaching of the movement was based on scripture, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Gandhi and others. You have to remind people over and over again that some of us saw our involvement in the civil rights movement as an extension of our faith. I agree with Lewis's quote, faith communities are uniquely situated to lead on this because we understand that we can tap forces greater than ourselves. The second reason I think faith communities could be really helpful here is that it is a good place to build that community. When we look across the country right now at the community building landscape, it's pretty barren. We've become pretty self-isolated. We've left many of our old institutions and associations that once held the country together. In our individual's consumer culture, we've lost that memory muscle of how you work with different people. It's hard work. Yet one of the last places where you still might possibly find a millennial, a Gen X, a boomer, and various genders, you might find gays and straights, diverse radical, uh, racial groups, diverse ideologies, our synagogues, churches, and mosques, but they're dying out quickly as well. And many are reflecting the polarization instead of standing against it. But I believe of all the existing communities left in this country, houses of worship are worth trying to build back communities of diversity in our country. Again, I'm quoting John Lewis. On so many occasions during the past two years, this is a couple years ago he said this, before he passed, I wished and prayed and somehow we could go back to 40 years ago when ministers, priests, rabbis and nuns, bishops and others stood up. And sometimes I feel today that maybe, just maybe, the religious leaders are too quiet. They need to make a little noise. They need to push and to pull. They need to be prophets. Faith communities are uniquely capable of building back ideologically diverse communities. But we have to stand up and we need to make a little noise. And the third reason that I think that faith communities could be a good place to start building back democracy is that we have pledged to be peacemakers. As America heads into this spiral, spiritual communities that came, claim to believe in the teachings of love and peacemaking need to practice it own tradition teaches that we're all created in the image of God, and when we hate our neighbor, we're hating someone God loves, created in God's image. And in our tradition, we uniquely believe that all faith paths are good, and God works for those who profess faith, and God works for those who don't. Our faith offers both a moral compass, but also some certitude in our beliefs, while holding respect of the views of others. Houses of faith need to become the place where we can train a rising generation 
of what I call cultural translators, which are leaders who can speak into the value systems of differing communities, particularly along ideological grounds. So I believe that for these three reasons, faith communities must take up the challenge of becoming incubators of democracy. First, by giving people a place outside of politics to find meaning and purpose. Second, because we hold the last most diverse community groups existing in America. And third, it's our mission to be peacemakers. Okay, so what does that look like? Uh, recently, I've been introduced to the work of Rabbi Michael Holtzman, who leads the Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation. He's a perfect example of a spiritual leader pioneering efforts to incorporate aspects of American civil religion and build back community. In his temple, they read portions of the Declaration of Independence or other important civil documents in the worship service for the congregation to discuss and debate. His congregation is diverse politically and he's seeking new ways to use his space to begin teaching dialogue, empathy, respect, and forgiveness for those with differing political viewpoints. There are other different models around the country. And we here at Church of the Holy City have been trying to pioneer our own work. And we're coming out with a new podcast supported by our denomination and teaching dialogue. Three of our leaders will be speaking at a denominational training on civil society this month. And we've done a lot of the beginnings of dialogues, but we need to do a lot more. And I challenge us at Church of the Holy City to imagine our role as bridging the divide by becoming a place that does the training for other houses of worship too. We hold an obligation to future generations to pass down a democracy that works. To do this, we must fight against the prevailing incentives for division and destruction. This work will not be easy. There are powerful forces of darkness who hold power based on the current brokenness of our politics. They will not let go easily. If peacemaking and community building were easy, people would have done it but it runs against the deepest parts of ourselves and we'll need to overcome that to do this work. And the future of our democracy is counting on it. I recently saw a quote from the poet Amanda Gorman who sums this up well. To love one another just might be the fight of our lives. It's time for faith communities to step up for the fight, to make some noise and embrace our own prophetic role and save American democracy. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Spiritual Resilience Podcast with Reverend Rich Taffel. We invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments, as well as proposed topics for discussion. Sending you love and light. Till next episode.